going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of the Revelation. Everybody say the Revelation. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of the Revelation. We are leaning into this text. Uh, we are not, uh, we're about, I don't know if we're halfway through or not, but we're, we're getting there. We're leaning into the book of the Revelation because of a couple of important ideas. In its opening pages are two significant statements that invite our faith, that invite our hope, that challenge us to something very special. Uh, in chapter 1, John the Revelator writes this. He says, blessed are those who read, hear, and heed these words. How many of you want to be blessed? We are invited to bring our faith with us into the pages of this text and anticipate the blessing of the Lord. Wow, I, I, I don't, I, sometimes I wonder if people even know what the blessing of the Lord is because you should, as soon as you hear it, you should go, yeah, yahoo, right? No, I want that. And if there's something that says this is exactly the way to be blessed, I'm going to do that thing. Right. And here's what it says. He, read it, hear it, and then just say a good word, pastor, and go home. Well, that's a good word right there. People like to say that, but there's that third part that really is the linchpin to blessing. And that is heeding it, responding to these words. And that's why John writes over and over again, and actually he's expressing the very words of Jesus himself to us in this particular to these, uh, these, initial, these initial messages that we are reading. The scripture says, if you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That means that in these pages, the Holy Spirit is still speaking to us. Yes, these are seven literal messages to seven literal historic places. But even the fact that, that uh, each letter is sent to all the churches, that alone tells us that this is a message the Lord wants everyone to hear. Moreover, these are the words of the one who stands among the lampstands, who holds the seven stars in his hand. And there is this spiritual and dynamic implication that these words are not just for the church of that age, but for the church of every age and every place. Therefore, to you and I today in Vancouver, Washington, we need to come to this passage believing the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And if he is speaking, as, one, as the New English translation says, let him who has ears to hear, he had better listen. Someone say, I better listen. All right. So here is what the Lord says to the church at Pergamum. Now, I'll just read faith. I'm going to just read the whole thing. Then we'll come back. You've got a coach back there. All right, like the Muppet Show, two of you, troublemakers back there. Hello. Very good. Here we go. I'll just read these five verses, and then we'll, we'll walk through them together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, this. I'm sorry, you got to just pause right there, right? The guy holding the sword is about to say something. <clears throat> so now we sit up a little bit. Uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name in 
did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I, I hold a few things against you because you have some, uh, you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else. Nobody wants to hear Jesus say that. He said it. I know this, it is not time to stop yet, but I must. Therefore, repent or else. I, we like the other Facebook Jesus more, don't we? Right, Jesus, who just has puppies and unicorns for everybody. What is this all about, Jesus, with expectations? It's like he died for us and expects anything out of us or something. What kind of nonsense is that? I want Facebook Jesus. Give me unicorns or give me death. Uh, therefore, repent or else. I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, you better listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And they used to say, growing up, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may he do so right now. Let's lean into this passage together. It starts off addressed to this place called Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Pergamum was about, oh, let's say it's about 50 miles north away from Smyrna, from last week's church. And uh, it's about 100,000, maybe 200,000 people, which has got to be somewhere around the city limits of Vancouver. Maybe, maybe I, I, my populations might be off a little bit by now, but maybe about half the population of the county, of Clark County. So it's a, it was a large city, especially in ancient standards. When you understand that ancient standards, they wouldn't have had the same technology for infrastructure and sewage and all the stuff that we have that make life a little bit easier to have a lot of people. So this is a large, bustling, robust place. It was, an, it was a city that was very important. It also was a leading religious center. Ah, very, very religious. It was a, it was a religiously pluralistic, wonderful uh, uh, cosmopolitan type of a place. Wow. I mean, you could walk through the, the streets of Pergamum, and on your left, you have the temple to Augustus. Ah, very nice. Augustus had his own temple there. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be nice, right? If you don't prefer that, you also have the temple to Zeus, who they called their savior. Down the road, uh, Zeus is one of his kids, uh, uh, Asclepius, I believe is his name. I'm, if you're a Greek scholar, don't get mad. I'm not a real good Roman god, Greek god guy because I don't really care. Okay, But, um, but I, I, I know I don't like them. Uh, but uh, this guy was the, one of Zeus's sons, and he was the Greek god of healing, and his symbol was a snake. So 
he had his own temple as well. Uh, also, Dionysus, the, the, the god of wine and festivity, also had a temple there. It was right next to a massive amphitheater that was carved out of a really steep hill that the city was built upon, this massive cone of a place. And it was one of the, one of the real wonders of the uh, ancient world there, massive 10,000-seat uh, amphitheater. Hey, that's what we need. Uh, massive, but it was really steep. We don't want that. But it was really steep, 10,000-seat uh, amphitheater, massive thing. And then right next to the place where all the frivolity had, there's a little place, a little, little wine store right there for Dionysus folks so they can have a little fun and have a little thing. And uh, so it was fantastic, but also not to be outdone by the other cities that we've already mentioned, Ephesus and Smyrna, uh, Pergamum also claimed that they, in fact, were the capital of emperor worship. Very religious indeed. They were a passionately religious group full of idolatry and emphasizing in emperor worship. This city And to this city, Jesus identifies himself as the one, he says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. That kind of a sword, not the little dagger that we sometimes teach about in the armor of God passages. This is a, this is a, uh, a Thracian sword, which would have, uh, would have been uh, longer and with double-edged, and it, it was a symbolic of a capital punishment. The Roman governor would, this is the sword that if you, this is the sword of capital punishment, this is the sword that you would be put to death by the government. But Jesus says, I decide. Judgment, life, and death is with me, Jesus says. And furthermore, it's not in my hand, it's in my mouth. And this is what he says to the church at Pergamum. Yes, I want to just, I like to slow down and just listen to these words. He says, I know where you dwell. Would you just say that with me if, you, if you'd happy to? I'm, I'm a little sensitive now that my friend in Bakersfield complained. But if you'd like to repeat after me, you may, all right? Uh, okay, There's, I know where you dwell. Would you say it? I know where you dwell. Literally, this is Jesus, the matchless Son of God, risen to the right hand of the Father in that, in that mystical heavenly dynamic, Lord over all, Lord of the cosmos, says, I know where you live. It has meaning in the text that we'll get to it, but I don't want to rush by it because, friends, if he knows where they live, then he knows where you live. He knows where you live. And I, I, I don't just mean that he knows your address. He literally knows the circumstances of your life. He knows the situation, literally situation, the situation you are in. He knows what's happening around you. This is not some distant deity. You've got to wave, wave, you know, traffic flags to get his attention. He initiates with this statement. I know where you live. Now, I know in some places that's a threat. But that's not here. Here it is, he is expressing compassion, 
and empathy and understanding. I know where you live. I know the situation in your life. Golly, if you'll let it, friends, this can be, and it should be, exceedingly encouraging to you. You are not alone. You are not left out. You are not overlooked. You are being looked at. He says it to them. He says it to you. I know where you dwell. I know what's happening right now in your life. My goodness, how I could just camp here for a while until I feel like the room has received that. And he knows where heritage is. Aren't you glad Jesus knew how to get here this morning? <laughs> Have I ever told you that sometimes when I'm out there on the curb and people drive by I, and they don't stop, I yell, wrong church? Not so they can hear me, just so I can amuse myself. <laughs> I didn't have to, but I didn't, the thing is, Jesus didn't just come rolling by today and, and think, oh, I'm on my way somewhere else. Nope. He was here when we got here. He knows heritage, and he knows this city. That means something to me, personally. There's a big map in my my, my office at my house, above my desk, big map of the county that Laura got me years ago and framed. One, one of the more meaningful things she's ever got me. And it says, the caption over the map says, this is my city. And people don't know that, but it is. And it means something to me that he knows where I am, where I, he knows where we as a church are. He knows this city. He knows its history. He knows the stuff that we don't know. He knows its past. He knows its problems. He knows what's being buried. He knows the pain that exists in our borders. He knows our possibilities. He knows our possibilities. He knows what's possible in this city. He knows what can be, what should be. He knows. Now, for them, for Pergamum, he knew some rather concerning things about where they lived. And that's the very next passage, not to belabor the point. Now Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yep, that's what it says, where Satan's throne throne is not just not just where satan's hanging out or has you know peekaboo but throne as in place of established influence <laughs> i know this church you guys just start throwing lobbies and you know it's like a ping it's like what's that pinata you just take a swing at things but here Jesus termed this city, Pergamum, as a place where Satan's throne is. Now, let me, if I may, just theologize a bit. Just, I'm going to bring my, my, my interpretation, my assertion to the, to the table. 
you're welcome to say, I, I disagree, but anyway, I do not believe that Jesus meant that Pergamum was the capital of hell. That somehow, like, this was the capital of hell. This was the epicenter of all hellish activity. And that somehow there was a Willy Wonka elevator that moved from Pergamum all over the underworld and around the world. No. You'd have to see the thing. There's an elevator. But uh, nor do I believe that Jesus is saying that Pergamum is somehow the epicenter of all darkness in the ancient world. What I do believe is that Jesus is saying that, that in this place, in this community, that Satan had established a territorial infestation of influence. Well, what was he, Jesus referring to? What was the throne of Satan there, right? Called Indiana Jones. Where was this throne? Maybe it was the temple of Zeus, our savior. Maybe it was, uh, you know, the, the, the temple to the healing guy or to the wine guy or to the other feller or to Augustus. Maybe it was the, maybe it was all of the emperor worship. Or maybe, like any good multiple choice question, Doc, maybe the answer is all the above. Maybe it was the plurality of idolatry and paganism that defined this place that Jesus himself says there's a throne of Satan there. But here's what I, is, I think is important to pause and recognize. Sorry for that mic. That Jesus says it's the throne of Satan and we know historically what was going on there. But if the, that place where Satan has his throne, there was no place where Satan had his, has his name. If Satan, we would expect, I suppose, I would expect, I would assume, if we were to say today, oh, such and such a city, Satan has his throne there, we would expect that in town square there'd be a pentagram and a goat dude somewhere. Right? Or at least a pitchfork somewhere. Do you know what this tells us? That's, that's very informative and should give us pause to reflect a bit. That it does not need to say Satan in order to be satanic. It's almost as if that feller thrives on deception. It's almost as if his influence is more aggressive when it's unknown or unadvertised or advertised as something like the snake feller or the wine guy. There's something to be learned here about how the enemy operates on earth. That Jesus tells his church that Satan's got a throne there, and you can run there and look around and panic for any kind of a pentagram or, hey, what's going on? Where's Satan's throne? Where's the, this way to Satan? Nowhere. Nowhere there. And, and all, all people are doing is minding their own business, worshiping a bunch of idols and enjoying paganry. But Jesus recognizes as an infestation of hell. We also need to recognize that Jesus, Jesus, everybody say Jesus. 
Jesus says this, and this is after the crucifixion. This is after it is finished. This is after the, the resurrection. This is after the stone has been rolled away. This is after heaven has, in the book of Matthew, struck earth in such a crazy way that when Christ comes out, about, out of the grave, a bunch of other people come up out of their graves too and wander around Jerusalem. This is after the, the, the veil in the temple is torn in half from top to bottom. And this is, af, this is after all these magnificent and supernatural events. This is after Jesus Christ himself stands in front of his church and says, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And he literally says to go around the, the world and make disciples out of entire nations in his name. He literally says, there is, no, there is no more limit to my power or my jurisdiction on the planet. And yet, he says, there's a place, and there's probably more than one, but there's a place here. He says, Satan has a throne there. How's that, how's that possible? That Satan could have such a place of infestation and influence and Jesus Christ still be Lord of all. It's because we still have work to do. No, not to help Jesus finish. He's finished. But the implementation, the contention, the dynamic, the fact that the kingdom of God is here, and yet there is more to come. That is the tension that where we live. This is why John writes in the very first chapter of Revelation. He says, I am your fellow, I am your brother and your fellow partaker in the kingdom and in the tribulation and in the patience. Meaning, there's, we live in the power and the influence of the kingdom of God at the same time with the tribulation against another kingdom that is resenting and rebelling and contending against it. And we live in the, in the patient tension of that until Jesus comes again. But he is coming again. And that is why Jesus taught us in the parables. He said there was a man who, who was born different. A noble man, born different than everybody else, who went away to receive a kingdom. But before he left, he gathered his servants, and he gave them everything he had. And he said, all right, go change everything. I'll be back. We have work to do. The message of Revelation, friends, is this. It was John writing from Jesus, letting the world know that there would be tribulation, there would be challenge, there would be conflict, but that Jesus Christ has and will overcome completely. He is coming again. So we contend and we live with that in mind. If we miss that part of Revelation, don't even read it. If you read it, if you read it for the fireworks and the graphs, you've missed it. You must know it's a message that Jesus is Lord. In the meanwhile, we have work to do. And this is the word to the church at Pergamum. He says, you, 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 where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Spicy there. To Pergamum, he says, you have continued to cling to my name. They continue to cling to the name of Jesus. They would not 
I want you to try to feel the robustness of this church. They, would, they clung to the name of Jesus. They would not deny their faith in Christ, even in the face of persecution, even when they, under, under the, the, the rule of Domitian, they took Antipas and they stuck him in a bronze kettle and roasted him alive. The church withstood and said, we will not deny the name of Jesus. Jesus takes that personally. They would not yield to threat or force from the outside. But, verse 14, Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Wait, what? How can, maybe I'm the only one who needed to pause and get this out, but I, how, wait a minute, how can Jesus have something against us? I mean, aren't we raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places? Aren't we one in Christ? Hasn't the spirit, aren't we woven together in that, in, that, in that hypostatic union, that weird, that powerful thing in the spirit? I mean, we are his beloved. We are his chosen. We are the recipients of immeasurable love and grace. Are we not? Well, how can he say, I have a few things against you? H-A-R-R-U-M-P-H, Jesus. Friends, it's, it's important that we remember that we are not talking about some sort of impersonal deity out there. Some bronze-faced God that doesn't have any feelings. We are talking about Jesus. Do you remember him? Do you remember? No, do you remember him? You remember that guy that his disciples were following him along, and he turned around, and he said, you guys are irritating the heck out of me? Well, okay, what he said is, how long shall I put up with you, you perverted and, you know, corrupt generation or whatever? And he says, and then, and, or, when they're, or when they're fighting about who is, be, who is better and who's cooler, he, goes, like, he gives them the, the heavy sign, the face palm. We're, this is Jesus. It is possible, friends, in fact, it is absolutely true that the same Jesus who with more love than any human being could ever imagine, would stretch out his hands and die for those who, for the very people who were killing him, who loves you more than you can possibly imagine, who loved you first and loved you most and loves you no matter what, loves you no matter what, that same Jesus can go, ah. that same Jesus can actually have expectations for you. He can actually see areas in our lives where he would prefer us to grow. He can actually look at areas in our life and be unhappy about specific things. How many of you have kids? You have Anybody have kids? Anybody love your kids more than they can imagine? You know what my mama used to say? She used to say, I wouldn't sell you for a million dollars, but I'll give you away for free. <laughs> it is possible that you adore those wonderful cherubs and occasionally would like them to do something than what they're doing. Right? It's important that we recognize that that Jesus' disposition toward the church isn't always either or. 
It's never either or. Jesus is not just perfectly pleased with everything that we say or do, nor is Jesus just totally opposed to us and angry with us. Nonsense. He loves us. He loves the church. And yet he says, I have some things I need to talk to you about. Precisely, friends, because he loves us. If he has some things against Pergamum, we should listen. And what he says is, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also, also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans. Now, here's the thing. Just in case you're reading this quickly and thinking, wait, what's going on? He is not talking about two or even three different groups of people. He's talking about one group of people, the Nicolaitans, and he is comparing them iconically. He is explaining what they are like by referring to an Old Testament picture. So he's saying, you have some who hold to Balaam, in the, and, which, and then explains that, and then says, in the same way, you are accommodating these people. So these people are like this first group of people. So what's, what's he talking about? Uh, what he's addressing, the problem is compromise. The Nicolaitans in, taught basically this. They basically taught that spirituality and gave room to licentiousness. That because you were spiritual, nothing else really mattered. That you were elevated to the spiritual plane and therefore you could just kind of ignore certain physical, if you will, sins. Particularly sexual immorality. And they use, Jesus actually uses Balaam to help them understand what was going on. So because he uses it, we should know what he means. And that's uh, in in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, and then again in chapter 31 and verse 16, this is the rest of the story. This is the Paul Harvey. At Christmas time, we've talked about Balaam before. We've talked about the fact that this is the guy who was hired by the king, and he goes up on top of the mountainside, remember, and, uh, and he's supposed to curse Israel, remember? He's hired to curse Israel. But every time he takes a breath to curse them, he cannot. He can only bless them. And then finally, at, the, at the, about the third time they want him to curse Israel, he takes a breath, he looks down, sees two million people, this massive crowd of two million people, and what he says is, I see him. He says, uh-oh, someone is coming. He backs away slowly. That's literally what happened. I see him, but not now. He's coming, but not yet quite yet. There's a ruler coming. I, I see too many people, but because of that, I see one person coming. And he gives up. He cannot confront them. you got to catch this. He cannot confront them directly. And so what Balaam does is that he, ad, he, ad, he advises the Midianites. He says, look. You cannot directly attack them with a curse. You cannot overpower them. You cannot remove them from the protection of God. You can't. You can come at them, 
with threat. It won't work. So what he says is this. He advised the Midianites to lead the Israelites astray through sin, through compromise. Balaam knew that the only real threat to the Israelites was sin. That their own sin, their willingness to disobey, their willingness to compromise and invite sin into their camp, into their lives, was the only way to introduce defeat into their lives. To get the Israelites to embrace sin, to accommodate it, to excuse it, to compromise it. He said, that's the way. And so Pergamum would not yield to the threat or the shadow of Satan. But Jesus said, but you're listening to Balaam. You're accepting the counsel that it's okay to compromise with sin. Because, after all, you're spiritual. You cannot compensate for compromise by being spiritual. You cannot. You cannot compensate for compromise by just trying to be a little bit more spiritual. It doesn't work that way. You know what they used to call that? Indulgencies. They used to sell sin or trade sin so you can get away with it. That's corruption. But it's not okay. Compromise is offensive to Jesus. We don't get to decide. We don't get to tell Jesus, hey, by the way, listen, Jesus, it's been a long time since, you know, you were kind of around. And, you know, the world we live in now, it's just kind of acceptable, especially some of the sexual stuff. <laughs> I mean, people are going to do it anyway, right? Am I right, Lord? So we might as well just, we, got, we just have to accommodate it. We have to make room for it. We have to overlook it. Besides that, they're really nice. People are nice. In fact, they're generous. Or they're, they pray a lot. Or they're really nice, or they serve. The, they serve. They do kind things for the church. It's just a little sexual sin. And while I'm sure that any of us might even be eventually persuaded by such an argument, there appears to be one person who is not. The Lord Jesus. The Church of Pergamum. Their problem wasn't Satan. They lived next to his throne. That wasn't their problem. Sin. And furthermore, not just compromise, but indifference. Because Jesus says, look at verse 16. He says, therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them. The idea is he is talking. He isn't just talking to some people. He's talking to the whole church. So there were some people in the church that were engaging in compromise. But the church itself was aware of it and was indifferent. Now, this is Jesus talking. We've got to take this seriously. He is saying, your indifference to compromise, I'm taking seriously. And if you don't deal with it, meaning, and the way that to deal with it was not to attack one another, was not to, to, to ta tar and feather. I know. You think, oh, Jesus must want us to tar and feather everybody and line everybody up like Achan and whoever's guilty gets buried under a bunch of rocks in the back. Nope. You know how Jesus wanted them to deal with it? Repent. Somebody just say repent. Repent. Stop it. 
Repent means recognize what is wrong, reverse course, and return to what is right. It's really important. Repent doesn't mean just feel bad and keep doing it. Repent doesn't even just mean feel bad. I mean, I suppose you can in the process, but I don't even think that matters. Recognize what is wrong, reverse course, and return to what is right. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I am coming to deal with this myself. He actually doesn't even say it that kindly. I'm, I am, because I'm, I'm such a people pleaser, saying it nicer than he did. Let me say it the way he did. I'm coming to make war with them, with the sword of my mouth. Yeah, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Oh, I really am tempted to say, he didn't, he didn't mean that. He's all right. Jesus is nice. Rainbows and puppies. But I cannot. Jesus says, repent or I'm coming to deal with this myself. Compromise by some and the indifference by all. To be indifferent, to be indifferent toward compromise that you are aware of is to be to aid and abet sin. But again, he's not inviting us to start throwing rocks at each other. He never once has invited us to throw rocks at each other. Never once. Can I say it again in case anybody missed it? Hello, Facebook world, all 12 of you. Listen, he's not inviting anyone throw rocks at anyone. He is commanding all of us to repent. Compromise is dangerous. Jesus is offended and grieved by it. And indifference is no better. Welcome to the world of not Facebook, Jesus who loves us more than we can possibly measure and yet still has great expectations from his church. And so Jesus says in verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, what he said to Pergamum, he intends for all of us to hear. The Spirit is still speaking. He is is still affirming. He is still giving life to the words of Jesus. And we can still be blessed if we will listen and respond. Finally, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but him who receives it. To overcome is to obey. Listen, to stay the course. Even if you have to adjust on the course, even if that course requires a course correction, a.k.a. repentance, but stay the course. Do not get off the field. Do not get out of your lane. Do not stop. Do not stop. Do not stop. Do not stop. Do not quit. Keep running. You might have, you, if you fall down, get back up. You run the wrong way, turn around. Run the right way. We'll help you. But don't let people run the wrong way and say, ah, they'll be fine. No. We are in this together. Stay the course. Run the race. Be faithful. And if you overcome, if you will overcome, he has rewards. 
He says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone. Wow. How many would like to know what that means? Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, Dad, you, we know, Dad, you know, we don't know what that means. Hidden manna. Okay, okay, okay. Some Jewish, there was kind of a Jewish legend. Remember, John's a big Jewish boy. He liked all this stuff. Very into history. There was kind of a Jewish legend that when the, that someday they were going to find the ark again. And that, and there was some manna hidden in the ark. And then that'd be cool, like something. I don't, I don't know. Indiana Jones. And then, uh. Uh, others think that what he means is that they had, instead of being nourished on food that was sacrificed to idols, I'll give you real spiritual nourishment from heaven. Okay. Uh, with the stone, there's at least, there's at least uh, three different ideas there. The white stone, uh, it, it, the white stone could have, could, would have your name on it, and it would be an invitation that you had to come into a banquet celebration. Wonderful. I like banquets. Bulls and Corral's opening this week. How many of you heard that just now? Holy, holy amens in the house. Okay, okay, I'll stay on target here. Uh, it also could mean uh, that, when, that uh, when someone uh, completed a great victory, particularly an, ath- an athletic victory, that uh, a white stone was given to the victor, and it guaranteed them a glorious retirement, so they could retire in glory and blessedness with this white stone, and your, and your name was written on it. It could also mean this. If you were on trial, if you were given a white stone, that meant you were totally acquitted. Hey, I'll take any of those three. See, here's the deal. There's people debate historically what was meant there, but so uh, why, what, listen carefully, what these rewards are, aren't certain. It's not certain what they are. But that they are is certain. Jesus, the, this book, you know, this book closes. Every letter, every letter to every church closes with the promise of reward. Because Jesus wants his church Not to live in fear, but to live in hope. He wants us to live forward. Sure, he wants us to repent. Yes, he wants us to return to love. Yes, he wants us to not be afraid even in the face of death. But no matter what, Jesus wants his church to live forward in hope, to be a place that, 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 that gives off, that, that oozes, that reverberates with hope. Hope drives us forward. Hope keeps us in the race. He wants us to live forward. And the book itself, Revelation, closes itself with the last words of Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. We are living people. We are people who live with anticipation. We have this, we have this irrepressible grin. You can't peel it off no matter what happens. Because we're living in anticipation of reward. And part of that includes... The absolute imperative to repent. To make sure that we don't carry any extra baggage with us on this race. Let everyone listen to what the Spirit is saying. Jesus says, I'm proud of you. I love you. I have a reward for you. Some of you need to repent. It's not up to me 
this morning to decide who that is. But I think it is up to me to say, if he said it to a whole church once, he says it to a whole church of every age, and it would behoove you and I, this whole church, to lean in and pray the prayer of David and simply say, Lord, come on, Brownie. Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any offensive way in me. See, David prayed that prayer as one who trusted in a God who loved him. David didn't say that to an enemy. He didn't say it to Saul or to the Philistines. He said it to the one who he knew loved him most. Friends, you and I can come to a God who loves us more than we can measure and be honest enough to say, Lord, search me and know me. Try my heart. Test me. Test my motives. <laughs> Search out the secret places of my heart and my life. Help me not to be so blind to the... The, the scripture says, keep me from hidden sin and from high-handed sin. That means sin, son. That means sin that I know that is wrong, but I do it anyway. Stop. So Lord Jesus himself takes this lovingly, very seriously. Let's stand together, please, as we close this morning. The scripture says, there is, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a message that would seek to condemn or to throw shade or shame. This is an invitation for you to come out of the place of shame. Stop excusing it. Stop empowering that sin through compromise. And for all of us as a church, friends, we have to be honest and say Jesus does not want us to be indifferent to what we know is wrong. We cannot. We must take sin as seriously as we take anything else. There isn't anybody at Heritage Church who would accommodate the devil, who would give Satan any room, save him a place at our, at our services. Some manifestations of the devil, you all go wildfire on him. And we have trained and taught this house to have a very similar approach to things like sickness. We don't believe that's supposed to be in your life. We believe Jesus paid for you. We go after that stuff. We contend for your wholeness. We don't make room for, for death and disease. So it's my responsibility just as a, the one who serves this house to say we must have the same resolute. We must be just as resolute to say, nor will we give room. We will not, we would not wink. Listen, let me say this carefully. We would not wink at cancer and say, it's okay. We wouldn't do that here. We would not. We would not wink at demonization and say, ah, it's okay. Nor will we wink at sin in our lives. Come on. How many want just real victory? And we real let's let us let's let us, as the scripture says, throw off the sin that easily entangles us. Just throw it off and run the race. Would you be honest enough with Christ? It's not, you don't owe it to me. If I don't know it, you don't have to come and tell me stuff. 
one's asking you to roll around in your own shame this morning, but everyone needs you to come clean before Christ. I need you to. I need you. My family needs you to take this seriously. Holy Spirit, come just blow through this house with your loving presence. With words that are greater than mine. But the life of the, the very words of Scripture arrest us and bring us to a place where we gladly, quickly, eagerly repent. We have no stones to throw, Lord. Not one at another. But all of us just say, Lord, we repent. Help us, Jesus. Lord, test us and know us. See if, see if there be anything offensive in us. God, I pray that every person in this house would accept this word for themselves as a voice, as the very words of the Holy Spirit know that there is blessing in obeying. That's as far as I can take you. As far as I can go. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the anointing of your Holy Spirit would come upon your church. That you would grant us the courage and the honesty to live free. You would see the joy set before us, that, you, that, that, that repentance is always followed by joy. It can be challenging, it can be costly, it can be difficult in the meantime, but it's always followed by joy, always, always in front of us. But Lord, we leave behind everything that's worthless. We make tough decisions to recognize things that are wrong. We reverse course and we return to what is right. Do so under the anointing of your Holy Spirit today in Jesus' wonderful name. If you believe that, would you say amen? Now may the Holy Spirit himself come upon you with power. May he anoint you today as you leave this house, and may you leave here under the ability, the anointing of the Holy Spirit as ever-increasing expressions of Christ in your world. Amen and amen. All right, friends, the Lord bless you. Thanks for being here today. Go in peace.